Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. You know, summer is starting and things are heating up. And in some places, temperature is beginning to exceed human capacity for existence. What you may not realize is it's a lot harder to cool down than it is to warm up. And warming up is something that gets at the heart of human social behavior. Here to explain more about what this means is Dr. Hans Rocha Eisenman. He's an associate professor of psychology at Universitat Grenoble-Alpes, and he's a junior member of the Institut Universitaire de France. And he wrote a fascinating book, Heartwarming, How Our Inner Thermostat Made Us Human. We'll also get to get a sneak peek into how him and his lab are expanding their research into how temperature is influenced by culture, behavior, and biology. All right, everybody, I'm really excited to welcome my next guest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You know, there's so much in your work that I found really intriguing. And I even learned a few things about myself. Before we dive into sort of your main uh, work that I read, the, the book Heartwarming, How Our Inner Thermostat Made Us Human, can you share a little bit about who you are and, and the work that you do? Sure. My name is uh, Hans Rocha Eisenman. I live in the French Alps uh, and I work at Université Grenoble-Alpes. Uh, so I'm an associate professor in psychology uh, and my specific domain is social psychology. But I'm uh, very much inspired by uh, behavior of animals other than humans. Uh, and my main topic is social thermoregulation. So how other people are basically involved in maintaining and regulating our core body temperature. It, well, and so that's really interesting. We intersect a lot on animal behavior and really looking at similarities and differences between ourselves and other species. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about your work. And, and yet I had never thought about social uh, thermoregulation. And so just, just to kind of, you know, draw listeners in a little bit um, before we dive into the social aspect, what is thermoregulation and why is it so important? <laughs> Thermoregulation is simply keeping your body at a relatively constant uh, temperature. At least it is the case for us as humans uh, and other animals that are like us. So homeothermic endotherms, it means relatively warm-blooded animals that can internally regulate your temperature. Um, If you're not able to do that, you die. It's very simple. It's just like oxygen. If you can't regulate your temperature, you die. But of course, there's a constantly fluctuating uh, external temperature. So it's a relatively complicated challenge. Now, we don't think about it anymore uh, for us human, modern humans because we have so many tools right now to be to regulate our temperature and even predict our temperature well in advance. So you can look 
uh, at the weather report of the day, you can predict what the weather is going to be, or even in a week, and you can decide if you go on vacation, what clothes you bring, or you have an uh, air conditioner or a heater that can help regulate your temperature. But that's not been true for most of humanity. So for most of you modern time, or for most of human history, we haven't been able to have those kind of tools to regulate our temperature. So that's why it's been, um, I think, so influential in human development. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have a tricky relationship with thermoregulation, which is one of the um, uh, reasons why I was so intrigued by by your work, first as a child and now as an adult. So so I want to talk about kind of how we regulated our temperatures, you know, maybe before modern times with all the tools that we have. But even with all the tools, you know, I have you know, I've always been really sensitive to temperature and I overheat really easy, which is pretty bad when you live in the desert, um, even with all of our modern tools. And, you know, uh, what you talked about, which I appreciated in, in heartwarming was how the sort of mechanism, right? The hypothalamus is involved in regulating temperature and um, at cer- certain times of our lives, are, uh, at least for women, the hypothalamus will go on the fritz occasionally. <laughs> and, and if you're in the desert, that can almost kill you. So I've learned very quickly how uh, not the inability to regulate your body temperature and cool it down really more than, I think you mentioned this too in the book, that, that, that overheating, it, it can kill you a lot faster than, than being too cold. But one of the things that animals do and that we do and maybe we did this more, which I think is where you're, you're going with what you were saying about, you know, prior to modern times is we can modify our behavior to regulate our temperature. So what are some of the ways that other species and humans at least used to, or maybe still do modify their behavior in order to regulate their temperature? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the one thing that you were saying about the kind of the asymmetry between um, up and down regulating temperature, uh, that's r- remarkable for many species. So indeed, you know, if it gets too hot, we immediately have to downregulate temperature because it can get very dangerous very quickly. Um, either you die or you have severe brain malfunction. The other way around is not that complex, is not that dangerous immediately. So we have more time to take care of that. Now, in terms of behaviors that we have, um, I mean, there are relatively simple behaviors that many different animals do, which is you can sit in the shadow to make sure you cool down. You can jump in the water in order to cool down. Um, or, um, you know, you also to warm up, uh, you know, you can be uh, protected from the wind, for example. But one that is relatively efficacious um, is to rely on others. Um, so if you think about internal ways of regulating temperature, uh, that's relatively expensive. Uh, so it costs a lot of energy to regulate, to upregulate your own temperature, uh, particularly uh, if you think, for example, about the mechanisms that we have. So one, one way that we uh, regulate temperature is by shivering. Uh, so you can shiver and that can upregulate your temperature, but the efficacy of that is very, very low. So it's something that we best avoid it if possible. So by the time you're shivering, it basically means that your core body temperature already starts dropping. So we, it's really our last resort. Before that, um, other people essentially uh, can help you regulate temperature. And there are even some telling examples from the 18th and 19th century uh, that were in recorded history. And I mean, there are many, many uh, examples in recorded history. But uh, for example, even as late as the 19th century in Paris or in Ireland, 
people would sleep with about nine people in one bed in order to keep warm uh, because there wasn't a central heater. And so you needed other people to stay warm. Uh, and there was one uh, that I hadn't written about in the book because I couldn't find the reference anymore. Uh, but I know that uh, in the past in the United States, um, men would travel around to different hotels and they would sleep with strangers in one bed for the same reason, to keep warm. Um, so there are many examples in recorded history that people sleep with each other or uh, are kind of huddling, essentially, like penguins to stay warm. Yeah. Well, and and so this is interesting because that brings in the social side of um, and something you call social thermoregulation and this uh, huddling. It, it, it also can affect more things than just temperature. Right. It, it's about that you wrote about it's about hunger and group coherence and it can really kind of be the glue um, that keeps the group uh, together and a lot of species huddle when they're cold not just men in the 18th century um, but also you mentioned penguins and my favorite is is bees because there's just something really adorable about male bees that cuddle together in flowers on a on a cold night like and you can find them sleeping together in, in a flower and you know, and I'm wondering, because it's so energetically expensive, and uh, we, if for social species, we can use others, uh, but even some solitary species like mouse lemurs will huddle together to keep warm. How does this get integrated into sort of what you call social thermoregulation? Like, what are the signatures of this um, that we can see in ourselves and maybe some other species? I'll try to get to your question, and I'm not sure if I'm, I'll be answering it correctly. So if I don't, please, you know, intervene. Okay. Um, what I can tell you is about some of the effects that we're finding in humans, uh, and, and I hope to get to that answer that, that way. Um, I'll actually start with a species uh, other than humans, because there was a particular study that we did because of this, this other species. Um, there's a specific type of monkey uh, that is from um, East Africa called Bourbon monkeys. Um, so they're oftentimes studied because they're very similar to humans uh, in their social behavior, at least. And there was a study, and I don't remember whether it was 2014 or 2015, where they uh, examined the core body temperature of fervid monkeys. And this was a group led by Rich McFarland and colleagues uh, from the University of Wisconsin. And they were wondering whether the minimum temperature of the fervid monkeys um, when the temperatures were getting lower, whether their temperature stayed higher if they had a larger social network. Uh, and that is, in fact, what they find. So if these uh, monkeys had a larger social network, their lower core body temperature was not as low as for the monkeys that had a smaller social network. <clears throat> so when I read that study, um, I, was, I wanted to do a similar study in humans. But you know, a priori, it's very clear that the social networks of humans are far more complicated than the, those of urban monkeys. So I didn't have a clear idea what would be the right predictor for uh, core body temperature in humans. Um, by, by that time, I was also learning a different analysis technique called machine learning, uh, and specifically conditional random forest. So this is a way that basically you can throw a number of variables against the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can also say, okay, you know, you can also try to repeat that analysis and to try to see if it replicates. So we measured a whole bunch of different variables in humans in 12 different countries uh, with about 1,500 some participants. Um, and we let participants measure their own core body temperature through an oral thermometer at the beginning and end of the study. And um, when we threw a, a whole bunch of variables against the walls, 
This included people's um, trust in other people in, in intimate relationships, their size of their social network, uh, the, the degree to which they are attached to their smartphone, even the level to which they felt stressed, because stress is typically thought as a predictor of core body temperature as well, or just simple things like gender, uh, height, weight, uh, because they are typically known to be uh, predictors of core body temperature as well. So some of the predictors that we that we uh, got out of that analysis were height and weight, which shouldn't uh, be a, um, a surprise because typically larger animals retain heat better. Uh, gender was a good predictor. Uh, typically, women tend to have lower core body temperatures. But one variable that came up as well is people's diversity of their social network, meaning in how many different social groups they participate. Um, and this also seemed to protect people that were living in colder climates from, um, from, from the, the colder climates that they live in. Why exactly that occurs? We don't know. Uh, we, still, we, we have a couple of different working hypotheses. So what we're doing right now is more specifically look at, okay, if we look at potential mechanisms for this, so for core body temperature, if we look at peripheral temperature, because that should protect the core from dropping, how does this interplay with our social relationships? And that's kind of the next step that we're taking in this uh, in this adventure. Well, so, so I find this fascinating because so diversity of social network would maybe mean like you belong to a sports group. Um, you maybe you have a church group, then you have your work colleagues and you have, um, you know, maybe other friends from schooling or, or other. So, so I think of it in giraffes, right? They have, they have a social network that is around the watering hole. They have a social network that's around feeding. Um, they have, if you're a mom, you have a social network around other moms, and in, at the end, they, they found that for uh, one population of giraffes, they were all connected, actually, once you mapped out all the different social network types that they belong to. And so is that what you mean by social network diversity? Like, it's not really the size so much as the, or is it both an interaction between size and diversity of types? Uh, I think that's a very good description that you gave. Uh, so it's indeed about the, the participation in these different groups. Uh, and for each of these groups, you only get one point. Um, and the way that we measured the maximum is 12 points. It was an interaction size. So we also did the analysis actually for network size. We don't find anything on, on network size. Okay. So, and that may also, um, actually what we find, um, and this is a little bit more complicated than what it is, is true for various statistical reasons. Um, in colder climates, people tend to have uh, more diverse social networks, and people are often surprised by that. But it's not the case that they have uh, larger social networks. It's just more diverse. Um, and whether this will hold up in future analysis, I don't know. But at least in our uh, sample, we did find that. This is uh, really, really intriguing, because the, the other thing I think about is you know, one of the things that you did look at that didn't come out was personality. And I always think about personality influencing the types of social networks that you belong to, or whether you're more outgoing or less outgoing and how willing you are to, to socialize. But this kind of brings me to a really big piece of, of your work that keeps kind of showing up. And that is the early kind of attachment, social attachments that we form and how that links to temperature. So so can you kind of break it down for us? How does our, our you know, early experiences in life link to how we socially thermoregulate later in life? Yeah, so that's, that's I think, a very, very important question. Um, and 
at, at, the, at this moment, we only have very indirect answers because the studies that we've been doing, um, we've only done in, in adult humans. Uh, so we'll have we have a couple different uh, kind of self-report uh, studies that link social thermoregulation and attachment, and some experimental studies uh, also in adults. So I'll start with the experimental studies uh, and the one that I think is the most robust. So we did a study that was published, I think, 2018 or 2019. Um, I don't exactly recall, where we manipulated temperature simply by holding something warm and cold. So basically, we're trying to activate the idea uh, of warmth or coldness in people. And the first time we did this study, uh, we based ourselves on the existing literature. And we thought, OK, if people are going to hold something warm, they're going to think of a loved one. There you go. Uh, but you know, we did this first study, and we actually found the opposite. So when people held something cold, they thought of a loved one. Um, so that was surprising to us. So what we did then, we repeated the study and tried to find an effect again. And lo and behold, we, we find exactly the same effect again. We find when people um, are holding something cold, they think of a loved one. So this is also for us kind of, I started revising kind of the ideas and theories since then. So really this kind of an idea of compensation. When, when the environment is cold, you really need to think about others. You, you need to be with others. But one, there was another wrinkle to this um, because in line with this machine learning idea, I also started exploring um, these, these effects more. And I started exploring, is there kind of a, uh, a different effect for different people? And what we find there is indeed when people are more securely attached in their relationship, they tend to have this, this um, relationship between temperature and thinking of loved ones more. So they tend to be more sensitive to, to the temperature differences and start thinking more of their loved ones when, when temperatures are low. Um, in line with that, we've also started looking more at other personality factors. So we started finding individual differences in the degree to which people desire to be warmed up with others. So, you know, when we ask people the question, you know, to what degree do you want to warm your hands with a loved one when you feel cold? Um, so that's one example question. And we've been, uh, we, we did a first project a couple of years back, and we're kind of updating this project to make it more representative of different countries. But what we find very consistently is that those kind of questions about warming up with others tends to be very reliably related to uh, people's trust in others in intimate relationships, something that you call from an attachment perspective, attachment avoidance. So people that are less avoidant in their attachments want to warm up more with other people. Um, and of most recent, so this is a relationship that we consistently replicate. It's a very strong relationship. What we also find is that this tends to predict or actually relate to people's feeling of loneliness uh, more generally. So, and this is a very, very robust relationship that we can uh, replicate, um, at least in the French students that we study them in, uh, in, uh, in Grenoble. Uh, and what we kind of want to move towards now is more what, what are called perspective studies. So we want to look at these effects over time. Uh, because of course, you know, you're not going to follow people from birth on uh, for many, many years if you don't have a good idea that this effect is possible because it would be a waste of resources. But I think we're now at the stage that we say, okay, find very robust effects. Now we should start studying this in infants. Yeah, well, you know, this is the part of the, the book, Heartwarming, how our inner thermostat uh, made us human that really grabs me because as soon as you started talking about the way that people want to warm up or, or sort of relationship style and attachment style, I immediately went, oh boy, this sounds a lot like, like my uh, relationship style. Let me 
uh, you know, flee, um, hypervigilant, uh, you know, and, and, and I do a very strange thing, which I, I like to keep my environment cold, but warm up, like snuggle in, you know, under covers. And the only other body individual that I've ever really like really craved warming up with was my cat. So, um, <laughs> which is like, I mean, literally, you know, I'd be like, I keep it cold to force him to, um, energetically have to choose to warm up with me. Right. I've totally manipulated my, you know, um, he's died now. So sorry buttons. Um, but I, I was thinking, Oh gosh, you know, I, he was the only one. And now I prefer blankets. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, you talked about how vigilant or high and, and that this translates into sort of vigilance or hypervigilance with this kind of insecure attachment. And it reflects maybe a, a harsher environment growing up and that there's a benefit, though, to individuals who are this type of attachment. They, they sort of quickly detect danger, um, have much faster escape. And, and that, again, right, my relationship style. So but the benefit, I, I see this benefit working unless it's just a group of two, right? So if you're in a large group, it's really helpful to have an individual that maybe, uh, you know, is like a nervous, a nervous Nelly, as I called it for my prairie dogs. There was always one who was like, you know, the sky is falling, <laughs> the sky is falling, we have to all pay attention. Um, but if you have, you know, a group of two, that can actually probably turn out to be more costly than than beneficial and so i'm wondering is there any way for for such people who have that um attachment avoidant kind of thermoregulation style to overcome this is there anything that they can do and and is there any benefit to doing it because you talk about how this can predict loneliness in the future and and how um, you know, can can we force ourselves to belong to diverse, more diverse social networks? And will that have a feedback to kind of, you know, I don't know, modify the the th social thermoregulation style that someone has? I think the uh, the points that you're hitting on are very important. And let me also try to clarify one point, um, because within the attachment literature, there are kind of two dimensions of attachment. One is avoidance, the other one is anxiety. Okay. And I think the one that you pointed to is a little bit more indicative of anxiety. Ah, okay. Uh, so the hypervigilance that people may have. Yeah. In our studies, typically, uh, and this is also what you pointed towards, we tend to find that people uh, that are that tend to be more anxious also tend to desire more uh, to regulate temperature by themselves. So like the warm blanket that you mentioned or, you know, the heater or something along those lines. They, they are kind of inconsistent. So in one study, we find it. In another study, we don't. Then we find it again. Then we don't. So we're not in, entirely sure what the reason is for that inconsistency. But it can be in part, um, we hope to resolve this in, in, a, in a larger study that we're doing right now. Because right now, we mostly measure, for example, the desire to socially thermoregulate. And we really don't have the confidence about whether other people will be there to socially thermoregulate. It could well be that people that are more anxious have the desire, but they don't have the confidence that other will be uh, other people will be there. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that because of that, they won't engage so much in that behavior. Now, as to what people can do to remedy that issue, um, I think we're still very early stage in our research to be able to, to really give good recommendations. However, one of the things in this new research project that we're hoping to find out is whether some of those alternative strategies, for example, regulating temperature by oneself, 
can also help resolve you know, some of the potentially deleterious effects of or relationships that anxiety has with stress and health. So um, I think what you meant pointed to towards the uh, to the adaptive perspective is very important because it even though I think from the group perspective it can be very beneficial, it's almost impossible that something like anxious attachment has continued to survive if it was so bad for people. So probably people have found ways to cope. Uh, so we're trying to look also, for example, the relationship with health and anxious attachment, whether there are interactions with solitary thermoregulation, the people that are uh, more anxiously attached, but they know how to cope with temperature variations by themselves very well, whether they don't have any um, poor consequences for health that you typically see uh, on attachment avoidance or anxiety. Uh, so that's something we don't know yet. Um, in, in addition, if we do think about, for example, uh, an intervention for attachment avoidance, one thing that we would be thinking about is um, kind of coupling uh, temperature to responsivity in, in social relationships uh, and that very early in life. So the reason why we think some of these effects exist is because children, uh, they don't feel safe when temperatures uh, get very, very low. They don't think that their parents can be there when, when the temperatures drop. And of course, te temperature regulation is not the only thing. So it's also, if they feel hungry, their parents don't give them to eat. If they feel physically in danger, their parents are not there for them. Those are, those are other reasons why people develop uh, insecure attachment, we think. But you know, probably if we can make the parents more responsive to their children, if their temperatures get really low, that could potentially, uh, there we could potentially develop interventions for the children in order to make them uh, more secure, at least from a temperature perspective. Well, and, you know, it's so, I, I know I keep saying this, it's so fascinating because one of the things I thought about, because even if, if you, if you're someone like me, who's socially thermoregulating challenged, <laughs> I respond to that concept that of warmth, uh, that, that we use in our language, that we use in our feelings and our emotions. Um, so I remember, and, and it came to me because in the book, you talk about how you had these favorite coffee shops and that like, you know, some unnamed large coffee chain uh, could never meet uh, those expectations uh, or the feeling that you got from these sort of smaller cozy, we use words like cozy and warm coffee shops where it's more personable. And then you're pairing that with holding a warm beverage, which I've been doing during, um, during our interview, holding my warm cup of coffee. And I th immediately thought about my grad school department where we had, it was in New York. So in the winter, you know, it's very cold. And as a sort of group cohesion, and I don't know that they intended it to be linked to warmth, but it was Friday soup every week and we had tea times. And that was for the whole department got together, um, you know, twice a week. And, uh, it was all centered around warm beverages and warm food. And I remember, I always felt like we were such a cohesive department and I felt like I was in a family and then, you know, no offense to my current department, we're in the desert. So nobody wants hot soup, uh, you know, <laughs> especially not in June. Um, and so, but we don't, we don't have those kind of activities uh, centered around. And I'm, so I'm wondering, is it just something intuitive that people do with warmth? They offer, um, I think you brought up Sheldon, right? They offer a cup of tea when you're distressed. And is that because we, we don't know that we know 
that this is so important? It was just instinctive to do, or is it something that we learn and, and then just apply to all of these different environments? Uh, so that's a very good question and I don't have the direct answer. So I'm going to partly just make something up. Uh, but I think, <laughs> I think there are educated guesses. Uh, at least, you know, if you look at different countries, uh, they do have different language practices as it comes to temperature. Uh, so in mostly in Indo-European languages or, Indo uh, or countries that have, that are very close to Indo-European language or have had very, very close exchanges, you see that people use the uh, metaphor to express warmth for affection. So he or she is a very warm person. I'm giving you the cold shoulder. Um, and actually, when I was in, in grad school, um, I thought this was universal. And I had to admit that I was very wrong about it because I was reading dominant theories at the time. And then I got in touch with linguists who were doing a much better job. And they were saying, no, this is not universal. You know, many languages, particularly many African languages, just don't have this metaphor. So what at least what that can point to is that, you know, we do have cultural practices that, you know, communicate these, these ideas and concepts to a next generation. In addition, this gets back to the coffee house idea. Um, you know, in some countries in Northern Europe, there is also a separate concept that uh, really conveys this warmth during cold times. So in the United States, many people know the concept of yoga uh, from Denmark or Hege, I think most people will pronounce it. And in my country, the Netherlands, uh, so where I'm originally from, uh, we have this concept of gezelligheid. Uh, and really gezelligheid also for me is this idea, you know, sitting around a fire with a bunch of other people during winter, or um, e even also having the shops out that are very gezellig, uh, as you would say it, you know, that really convey a certain warmth uh, during the winter where you want to be. And where you, you know, even having very weak ties with your local social community gets, gives this feeling of connection. Um, so I think that there is something that probably a part that is into it, um, so that we do because, you know, we need to stay warm and there are just certain mechanisms that are very basic and essential, but part of it is also definitely culturally communicated. And I say definitely now, and I said in the beginning that I was going to guess, uh, but I, I would guess that it's definitely like that. Yeah, no, it's okay. We can have all the caveats that we, you know, we're, we're, we're just sort of exploring these ideas, but that kind of brings me to the connection between emotions and temperature and the words that we use, like you said, you know, cold shoulder, but I think you did some experiments or there were experiments that showed when you felt there was a game, uh, uh, a ball game. And oh, my heart broke. Cause I was like remembering the child in me that was excluded from kickball, like picked last on the team. Right. And reading about how, you know, when you are rejected, you're, you're physically actually lower your temperature. Is that, is there a temperature drop? Is that correct? Or yeah, am I so, getting it backwards? Um, I'll, I'll give some background behind the study because it's a very famous um, paradigm within social psychology. So <clears throat> this is a paradigm by Kip, Kip Williams from the, from Purdue University. And what he, what he did, uh, he created a very simple ball tossing game. Um, so you uh, sit behind a computer, there are two other players, and you're another player and you just throw a ball to somebody else. Um, these other people are throwing a ball to each other as well. Uh, and uh, what you find very consistently is that once the game is started and the ball has been thrown a couple of times, they don't throw the ball to you anymore. People find this very negative, very weird and negative. They're very upset about this. So they, it's found very consistently that people feel 
negative afterwards. They even feel angry. And they've even done studies where they've tried to do this and manipulate and say, listen, you're now playing with two, two computer players or you're playing with two human players. Even when people know that basically the game has been programmed, has been rigged, they still feel very bad about it. So we thought, okay, you know, we think that this just being included in relationships is super important for people and also for their, uh, for, for their temperature. So we wanted to measure peripheral temperature while they were playing this game. So we measured peripheral temperature on the non-dominant hand. Maybe to get back to um, the earlier discussion, you have a difference between core and peripheral temperature uh, for um, humans and other animals. Core body temperature is not prone to changing that much, but peripheral temperature changes relatively quickly. If you go outside in the cold, it immediately drops basically to protect your core from changing. In this case, we wanted to measure peripheral temperature because of its sensitivity to change. That we think, well, if there is some protective mechanism, that's where it should happen. Um, your finger typically is the one that changes the uh, most quickly uh, as opposed to other parts of the periphery. So we put a sensor on people's uh, index finger of the non-dominant hand, and we looked over a period of time what would happen if they were excluded in the ball tossing game as opposed to being included. Uh, we saw indeed that when people were uh, excluded, their temperature dropped uh, during the during the study. If they were included, uh, their peripheral temperature didn't go up. But of course, you also imagine if you're participating in some random ball tossing game, it's not like a like an uplifting uh, spiritual experience. That right. Gets up your peripheral temperature, and you're super happy. It's it's really about the exclusion. Yeah, yeah. That's well, and and it's really you know it's so interesting because. What comes up for me when I think about that, I mean, I, I understand that and I think, okay, you know, but is there a, also a compensation? So when you're angry or um, maybe not with rejection, it depends, right? If you feel, perhaps if you feel uh, humiliated, uh, right? I'm thinking about emotions. So I'm going to, you know, humiliation, anger, fear, um, in all of those emotions um, and something you do, which is invite people to connect emotions and bodily sensations in, in not just your book, but in your work, you know, I feel heat, right? I, like, so if I feel panic, I get, but it, it occurs in different places. So it's very interesting, right? And I'm wondering, is that a change in peripheral body temperature or is that just a quick a quick sort of response, but but peripheral body temperature can go down in in a feeling of rejection or an anger or fear. Uh, I, I just uh, you know can you tease that apart a little bit because I'm not. Yeah, that, that, that's also another great question uh, and one that we don't necessarily have a great answer to, uh, but we are working on replicating this study. So what do we want to do? Um, so psychology has changed a lot in the last ten years. So this is a study from 2012. Okay. So first we we simply wanted to see okay. If we do this study with more participants, do we find the same effect? So that's the very basic question, you know, because that's something that is important. If if you think that something is a true true effect, you should be able to find it in another study. So that's what we're going to do first. However, at the same time, we're interested in in some other things. What happens to people that live in different climates? Do they have the same effect to this rejection? Two, um, there's probably some inter-individual differences. And I think this is partly where you're pointing to. So some people may feel really rejected. Other people may feel angry. And that probably depends on their personality style. So whether they really want to get back at somebody or whether they're like, oh, I'm sorry, but you know, I, I don't like this. You know, they really feel rejected. So that's, that's I think, where we're getting close to that answer. Um, and the third one, 
is one that I forgot. So we can talk about that later. But <laughs> anyways, the, 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 there, there is Fear. also... Fear. 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 Uh, yeah, but there was another point that I wanted to make that I just okay. randomly forgot. But it is the case that uh, more generally, so in the 70s, there were also studies on emotions. Um, so more about what what's this, so this was a study by Paul Ekman and colleagues. And what they did, they had people express certain emotions. So they would have actors look angry or uh, surprised um, or I don't remember all the emotions, but they basically have people express emotions. And what they find, for example, when people look, look sad, their peripheral temperature goes down. When people look angry, their peripheral temperature goes up. Now, just like the other study that I talked about from us, the study was limited in sample size. And what I also suspect is that actually it can be far more complicated because if you're angry at your partner versus if you're angry at a storekeeper, these are very two different Kind of angers, or if you're sad within your relationship, or if you're sad about something else with your partner, you know, these are very different emotions. So I think there's a lot of unexplored area in relation to peripheral temperature and how we respond to specific relationships and about specific emotions, because depending on the on the relationship, it will be very different for a different type of emotion. Right? So I don't have a good answer, but I just say it's there's a lot of unexplored area in relation to temperature and, and relationships and emotions. Well, and I think, you know, one thing that I took away from this was, you know, paying attention, like noticing your body sensations, noticing your temperature can give you a, a barometer or a thermometer um, <laughs> of how you're feeling internally, um, emotional wise about a situation. You know, pa- we're familiar with some like palm sweating or some people I, I, I've known, you know, start to sweat um, or, you know, turn red or, you know, all these sort of things. But, but so what I'm understanding is that that doesn't affect core temperature as much. And when we're thinking about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the thread here. I'm going to go back to social thermoregulation, right? So when we're thinking about social thermoregulation and huddling and, and how secure we might feel or trusting that others are there for us and in our social group or our social networks, a lot of this kind of ties evolutionarily, I, I think, you know, if I don't misspeak here, to the fact that it's really expensive. And you mentioned this at the beginning, it's really expensive to regulate your temperature. It's, it's, uh, takes a lot of effort, um, to stay at a stable body temperature and you could do things, you can go in the shade and, and all of this, but that it's a lot easier if you can find a cheaper, um, way to accomplish the same goal. And, you know, you used a phrase called economy of action. And as a, you know, animal behaviorist, I always think of this as sort of optimization of, of behavioral decision-making or everything that we do, there's a cost benefit and we try to find the optimal way to navigate all of the many thousands of things we have to do in a day. How does that, um, is, is our social thermoregulation patterns um, and behaviors and integration into our, our sort of cultural norms tied to economics of, of decisions and behaviors? Yeah, thank you for bringing it up. Um, I think the economy of action perspective is super interesting. Um, so to kind of summarize uh, for your listeners as well, what the economy of action perspective is, is simply we need to take more in more uh, resources than we expend. That's the very simple principle. If we don't do that, we die. Um, so basically we need to eat more than we exert um, and we try to avoid 
exerting those resources as well uh, as we can. And actually, when I began this research, I was really more uh, interested in the social cognition of temperature. So, you know, how do we think about temperature and how do we think about our relationships? But, you know, I, I won't go into all of that because I think that, that this will be a, too long of a detour. But there were many pieces that were not fitting together. And then I uh, talked to my now friend, Jim Cohn, who was working on, um, on social relationships um, from a different perspective, really more on the idea for risk distribution. So something that we talked about a little bit before when you talked about anxiety. And basically the way that Jim uh, was working on his studies was, for, was from a behavioral ecology perspective. And uh, I'm trying to think about how to best explain this, but I think it's best to first explain his study and then go back to temperature. So Jim was doing studies with couples that came to his lab at the University of Virginia. And he would have one person in the scanner um, and one person outside of the scanner. We give the person in the scanner an electric shock. So just a very tiny electric shock, not you know something dangerous for them. Um, and actually, the, the thing is, the electric shock is not the, not the thing that really stresses people. In, um, I think... 10% of the, so they would get a, a red cross to see, and in 10% of the cases, they would get the electric shock. But the anticipation of seeing that red cross was really the stressful bit. Now, typically, when you, uh, when you are stressed, you see different parts of the brain light up uh, because you know, there's st stress going on. And the dominant idea, idea at the time um, was that if people would do more stress regulation, you know, you would basically see more activity in the brain. So he had partners sit next to them and he thought, well, they're gonna do more stress regulation. So if the partners hold the hand, I would see more activation in the brain. And he saw exactly the opposite. So that was a big puzzle for him at the time. And then he learned about the economy of action and kind of the idea of the economy of action in this case is okay, what, what is happening for those people in the scanner is not that they're doing more work, they're doing less work. They're distributing work to their partner. So they're basically outsourcing part of the work and they're basically distributing the risk of potentially stressful situation, which makes the situation more efficient for both of them. And that's also how I started changing my perspective on social thermal regulation. So when we're able, so think about the, the men or the women and men in 18th or 19th century Ireland, United States or, uh, or Paris, um, you don't have to regulate temperature by yourself. You're basically distributing the risk of temperature regulation, but also the cost of temperature regulation. And as a whole, you're making temperature regulation more efficient and thus less costly for the individual alone. Now, um, I think personally that this economy of action perspective is super interesting because it also kind of suggests that uh, the unit of analysis is probably not the individual person for kind of almost rational self-interest, but it's almost always at least a diet for human beings or perhaps groups. Uh, so that's the, the more logical unit of analysis if you think about the efficiency of regulation. Yeah, well, and you know that comes right up on you know sort of people who may not be fans of the idea of group selection, right? But one can start, I mean, you can move from an individual perspective and, and it can benefit the the everybody involved. It almost is like a reciprocal altruistic thing. When you, we talk about the penguins, right? Each individual penguin needs to stay warm. If we're talking about emperor penguins in Antarctica, um, and then it's through collective behavior that they drop the cost of 
staying warm by it was like something like 36 or 40 percent um mm-hmm. which makes uh, makes or breaks whether any individual penguin lives or dies yeah and there's also a good example from another species on hamsters um so hamsters actually have a more hierarchical thermoregulation okay so some of the lower ranking hamsters in the group they stay outside uh, in order to protect the higher ranking members uh, inside of the group uh, so they have greater risk of dying, uh, basically for for the group itself. So I'm not sure if it's super nice behavior of all the hamsters in the group. It's not very reciprocal, right? But, yeah. but that's also kind of an, an example where basically one hamster is almost sacrificed for the benefit of the group. Well, and you know, I wonder if you know back when nine people were sharing a bed, who gets to be in the middle, right? Because that's going to be the warm. Is is I mean, to me, the middle would be the warmest because you're surrounded by more more bodies, at least on, on the sides, not necessarily on the top. And, and so, you know, I would be curious, did they rotate, you know, or is someone always, or is it fixed? Are the positions fixed night after night? So I would love for historians <laughs> to, to do research on social thermoregulation about yes. the nature of people's relationships and whether people reciprocate, whether they change positions. I would even wonder if, for example, higher ranking people in society have people to thermoregulate them at a certain point. I bet. I bet you could. I I mean, that would be so this is and this is why it's so really interesting, because that I think it it plays into all of the social dynamics that we have, even our, our social networks, their diversity. I mean, social networks have properties where some individuals are really well connected across different groups. And, you know, and what benefits do they do they sort of accrue as a result of that? And I really did um, find it fascinating that study you mentioned about the the in the scanner where they distributed the stress to their partner. I recently did this. I I don't like being in MRI machines. I find it very traumatizing. <laughs> I, and, I usually fall asleep in, in oh, I fell asleep almost this time. Why? Because my partner was in the room and I felt uh, this relaxation. They were completely stressed and I was fine. So I think I, I, I didn't know that, that this would have been the effect. And I, I still thought I would be very anxious, but it turned out I, I almost went to sleep. It was, I was so relaxed. It was the best experience I'd had in an MRI ever. So, um, well, I don't want to, I know you're busy and I don't want to take up so much of your time, but I do want to at least let listeners know what's next and, and, and your students are doing some really cool work. And so could you give us a little sneak peek about what's, what's happening in your, in your lab now? Yeah, so the biggest ongoing project right now um, is by one of my PhD students, Olivier Dujour, and he is doing a large cross-national studies in national study in over 40 countries where he has collected more than 10,000 participants. So he's doing this skill development project that is a follow-up from what I mentioned earlier on people's desire to thermoregulate or confidence to thermoregulate. But one of the big changes is also that we had people in different countries come up with potential items so that we are, that will better represent kind of the diversity of people's behavior to regulate their own temperature. Uh, there, we're also measuring people's propensity to distribute risk and also to share food, uh, not to solely focus on, on thermoregulation, but we, because we also think that those are important components of, of attachment. He's also working on a study, uh, kind of where we're trying to figure out 
you know, why are people's core body temperatures so well protected uh, when they have different types of relationships? And we're really studying peripheral temperature in uh, people in romantic relationships. We're hoping to kick off a project soon where we're also going to measure infant cries or record infant cries and look at the peripheral temperature of their parents and to see whether a good, better attachment uh, relates to uh, a greater responsiveness of peripheral temperature to infant cries. So we've developed an algorithm to record infant crying so that we can, so that we basically filter out all the background noise in the recording from crying. Uh, and we, we will use sensors that we use for other projects. So uh, we so that's kind of the natural follow-up step of the other uh, effects that we that I mentioned on attachment avoidance and temperature. Okay, this is exciting work. And I know this is going to be an N of one, but I can tell you that my propensity to share food is in direct proportion to how close I feel to somebody and whether I like them or not. <laughs> It, it, it's it's I wrote a I wrote a uh, a blog um, for Psychology Today um, on on don't touch my food um, <laughs> and and it's it's amazing when I feel compelled to share food I'm like oh, I must really like and trust this person because um, I'm willing to they still can't take it off my plate but I I will share. <laughs> but you mentioned as well that you were half Brazilian. That definitely does not come from your Brazilian side that you're less willing to share food because. Exactly. Yes, We're, we have a half Brazilian household here, and food sharing is a normal part of our, our of our daily routine. It's true, it, and culturally, right? It, it can be quite awkward because it's very, you know, that's sort of a sign of affection and 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 just sort of the nature of of what people do. And I'm like, nope, just nope. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two more anecdotes to finish okay. off. Uh, the first time I was in Brazil, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to his friend uh, who I'd never met. And the very natural response, because he was eating a sandwich, was whether I wanted a bite of a sandwich to a person I had never met in my life. So for me, being Dutch <laughs> was very unusual. Since then, however, I've, I think I've come a long way. And one of uh, Olivier's uh, supervisors is from Germany. And for him, also, the, the notion of food sharing was very weird. And we also asked people to come up with these items. And one of our German collaborators uh, basically responded, uh, when we asked him to generate an item about food sharing, he just said, I don't know what this means. This is foreign <laughs> to my culture. I'm half German. This is the other half. There you go. <laughs> I, I love that. And, you know, I've really, thank you so much for taking the time, Hans, to talk with me. It's, it's wonderful. And I think everybody should get your book, Heartwarming, Heartwarming, not Heartwarming, sorry, Heartwarming, How Our Inner Thermostat Made Us Human. And I hope I get to uh, follow up with your work and, and, and find out what's, uh, what's going on with temperature and, and, and food and all these other things. Very interesting. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. All right, everybody. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, you can get the show notes at my website, uh, jenniferverdalen.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. And please, if you like the show, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, give us a like, share it with some friends so that everyone can enjoy these episodes and we can keep doing it. Uh, there's some exciting developments coming up in the future and I will be very excited to share those with you soon. So until next time.